From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, July 27th. I'm Aaron Schachter. In London, a sporting festival begins with pomp, ceremony, and a big party. A continent away in South Sudan, the sport of wrestling is being used to bring peace. It's changing the rivalry from fighting and raiding cattle to who can be the champion in this game of wrestling. But there's no peace in Afghanistan. Insurgents there are stepping up attacks as the U.S. draws down. One analyst says a key part of the mission is a failure. Have we managed to create a regime that can survive on its own? No. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. And this is the day. So enough about the traffic and the weather and the cost. Let the games begin. It's the start of the 30th Summer Olympiad. The opening ceremonies are underway at Olympic Park in London. The world's Alex Galifant is in the British capital. Alex, you've been out and about today. What's up? Aaron, it's a really good time to be in this city. One of the fun things about the Olympics is that people start wearing clothes that tell you where they're from. Flags on their shirts, flags in their hats. So you look around the city and you see evidence that the whole world is here. I met an Olympic fan from Germany on her sixth Olympics. Uh, I chatted with a group of journalists from Cuba and countless London volunteers giddy with anticipation. And today is all about anticipation. Right. And you were outside the Olympic Park in East London today talking to some of the thousands upon thousands of visitors in town for the biggest sporting event in the world. The Cleveland family from Eagle, Idaho, is bringing it. They're all suited up in American flags. Here's Scott Cleveland. We're sort of into it. We brought our moms. We had our moms and some friends of ours. Yeah, this is my mom. Hi. You're from Idaho as no, well? No, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico area, but my grandfather was born in London in 1891, so I this is my first trip ever to the British Isles. I'm excited. The Clevelands are at the opening ceremony tonight. After that, they've got tickets for a smorgasbord of basketball, volleyball, table tennis, and more. The men's 100-meter final, uh, Usain Bolt, that should be exciting. Juan Miguel from Spain has a more limited agenda. And we got tickets for volleyball in central London for tomorrow night and uh, not for today. For today we are just having a look at the atmosphere and so on. He and his friends are watching the opening ceremony on TV, not in person. No, no way. Too too expensive. Too, Too expensive. I met a group of kids on their way into the Olympic Park too. They're from a grade school in the north of England. Tonight they're taking part in the ceremony as a guard of honor. They cheer on the athletes. In their case, athletes from Kyrgyzstan. And what do these English kids know about Kyrgyzstan? That it's a country. There's only 14 athletes. Wrestlers and judokas mostly. Don't mess with Kyrgyzstan. Outside the Olympic Park, a group of London transport workers has been fighting for another cause. £12 billion they've spent on the Olympic Games and they can't afford to provide the 
young people with jobs, with educations, with homes. But all in all, the city seems pretty happy today to be hosting these Olympic Games. One Londoner, a Filipino named Jimmy Granada, is excited to see his homeland's best athletes in action. One boxing,、um, swimming as well, fencing, and、um, billiards. Billiards at the Olympics? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that one. Alex, you won't be seeing any billiards, at least not at the Olympics.、Uh, what are the real Olympic sports going on this weekend? Well, there's a pretty tasty tennis match between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. Federer, remember, won Wimbledon recently in London, and the tennis at the Olympics is taking place at the same place. And he doesn't have an Olympic gold medal. He's got a lot of Grand Slams, but he wants that one.、Um, we've got the start of the swimming too. That takes place in London's beautiful new aquatic centre.、Um, look out for both men and women's 400 meter individual medleys in the swimming.、Um, there's heats in the rowing. There's men and women's soccer. The U.S. women are playing tomorrow. Uh, and you know, loads and loads more. And of course, Alex, the main event for today—the opening ceremony. You watching that? I am, and you know it's a really big challenge for the organisers. How do you define a nation and a city in a show that only lasts three hours? This is a huge opportunity to tell the world what Britain and being British means. But Britain is a very complicated place, so it's no easy thing. The world's very British, Alex Galifant in London. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Aaron. A big challenge for everyone at the Olympics is the language barrier. This year, volunteers are on hand to answer all kinds of questions in many different languages. Some of those volunteers are armed with a new mobile app that can help translate what people are saying. The app was designed by a researcher at Brigham Young University in Utah, home of the 2002 Winter Olympics. From Salt Lake City, Andrea Smarden reports. Say you're a volunteer at the London Olympics, and a Korean tourist asks you a question. 화장실이어디에있어요 But you don't speak Korean. Well, with a new translator application, you can use your smartphone for an instant translation. Where is the toilet? <laughs> That's Giovanni Tata, a professor at Brigham Young University. He's head of this translation project. So now I can talk into it. The bathroom is to the left. Tata's demonstrating how the app works with Hua Li, a Korean student volunteer who has translated, typed, and recorded phrases that would likely be used in an Olympic setting. There are categories so arrival and departure, business, postal service, sightseeing with children. In all, there are some six thousand phrases that the translator provides for the Olympics. Are、so、kids allowed? I say, 아이들도 데려가도 되나요 Visiting a village. So how many blah blah are there? And I would say, 거기에 얼마나 많은 무엇이 있습니까? How do you say blah 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 in Korean? Oh,、uh, if it's for a person, I would say 누구 누구. If it's for a place, I say 어디. Lee is one of dozens of students who volunteered for this project. Giovanni Tata, who's from Italy, says it's important to have native speakers do the translations. Only a native speaker can give you the assurance that the, the phrase is correct, and if you're giving directions and commands, you have to make sure that you're saying conveying the right message. Otherwise, you could create some confusion. The app is intended for use by Olympics volunteers, but also by emergency workers. So it's important that the message is conveyed accurately. In fact, Tata consulted with police and security officers in the UK to come up with some of the phrases. Tata says the app builds off Google Translate, but takes it a step further. Google Translate is like 
great tool. The only problem is that many times the translation is not quite accurate, and sometimes it's even funny. Tata says building the translator app at Brigham Young University makes a lot of sense. Many BYU students are Mormons who serve on missions around the world, so the school teaches 80 languages. BYU has been developing language tools for years, including a language learning app for the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. Tata estimates there are 120 languages spoken on campus. Amazingly enough, though, the language that we finished first was Chinese. We got a lot of Chinese speakers here on campus, and then Korean, and then、um, Portuguese, and then,、um, of course, Spanish. Now, in some languages, we only had one volunteer, so it's taking a lot longer to get all the phrases translated. Tata says they've done as much as they can to build the app database before the start of the London Games, but he expects it to grow as people add to it. If someone speaks a phrase that's not already in the database, that native speaker can confirm that the translation is correct, and then it's automatically added. We see it as something like Wikipedia for translation. The more people use it, the more people contribute to it, the better the product will get. Yes, initially it's maybe just for the Olympics, but eventually it could become a useful tool for people that will travel all over the world. In fact, Tata wants to use the app for his own trip to Egypt later this summer. In addition to his interest in languages, Tata is an Egyptologist. I've developed language learning training software, but it's not as exciting as a translator because I'll be one of the first users when I go to Egypt. I know a little bit, but not enough. With this, I can be able to communicate. The app is available for free on the Android and Apple platforms. Tata says it's a non-profit venture for now, but that could change as it grows. For the world, I'm Andrea Smartin in Salt Lake City. Here's another translation app we could all use for the Olympics. Something to explain all those technical terms in sports that we more or less only pay attention to once every four years. We don't have that, but we do have the next best thing—the world's language editor, Patrick Cox. And Patrick, let's start with swimming. That is one of the big events this weekend. And、uh, what are a couple of terms that the TV commentators might throw in? Well, Aaron,、uh, swimming terms are actually quite straightforward. They're pretty descriptive, especially when you've got the image to help you、uh, figure out what it is. So the, there's talk of body roll and gliding, streamlining, that things like、sense. that. Yeah, and then there's something called windmilling, which takes a little bit more figuring out. But、um, it's good to know that windmilling is something you shouldn't be doing. You're going to actually slow down if you do that. Means your body is too rigid.、Hmm. And some of the lesser-known sports. Well, it's funny with the lesser-known sports. The lesser they are known, the less prime time they are, the more technical terms they seem to have, and and the more obscure ones at that. Actually, I think I should quiz you, Aaron. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm sure I'll do great. Okay, fletchings. What do you think fletchings are? What sport are they、uh, used in? <laughs> Fletching, badminton. It's my It- final answer. It is not badminton. It is archery. Now there is a sport that we really only pay attention to once every four years. <laughs> it's actually pretty exciting, though. It's a great sport, and this year, you know, it's going to be played at Lord's Cricket Grounds. Amazing.、Mm. Fletchings are the small, colourful wings on the back of an arrow. So essentially, they're the feathers that have been replaced by these plastic things called fletchings. Here's another good one: egg beater. What sport do you think that comes from? <laughs> Egg beater, moving your arms around. You're getting there. You're I, getting there. Actually, you know, I'm not going to give you the answer. Let's let's put the answers online. We'll put them at theworld.org. And and let me give you a couple more. A Randolph. I'm at a loss. 
<sighs> some more, some more. Okay, a bonk. A bonk. Now that is that sounds like a technical word, doesn't it? A bonk is actually uh, can be used as a verb or a noun. You okay. can bonk. Huh? There is a, a we use the term bonking in hiking. Ah, when, you're when getting you, close. Uh, you're getting close. When you haven't had enough uh, fuel, and you can kind of crash. Your yeah, you've crashes. got you've you've got that. Although the sport in question uh, is a little off. It is triathlon. All right, I'll take that. Now, for the answers to the other two that we mentioned, go to theworld.org, and that's also where you can hear Patrick Cox's latest podcast on language called "The World in Words." And, Patrick, what's coming up on the latest edition? Well, it's all Olympics and London-related items and some more obscure terms as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And speaking of archery, South Korean archer Im Dong-hyun's fletchings, remember that word, served him well today. Im today broke a world record, his own, in the Olympics archery ranking round. He won gold at the 2008 and 2004 Games, then lost his world number one ranking last year to an American... And here's the kicker. Im is legally blind. He's afflicted with severe myopia that makes his sight 2200, about 10 times worse than average. In practice, that means he can't read the letters on a keyboard, but can just about make out a blob of yellow color in the center of the target 70 yards away. Now, a ceremony figures in today's GeoQuiz, but not an Olympic one. The ceremony we're interested in involved military officials, not athletes. This military ceremony took place today in a border village on the Korean Peninsula. It marked the 59th anniversary of the armistice that put the Korean War on hold. No peace treaty was ever signed, so technically the two Koreas are still at war. And soldiers still fortify the line of demarcation between the North and South. That means this village we want you to name is located along one of the world's most heavily defended borders. Got the answer? It's coming up later in the program. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. The two Sudans are both making news at the Olympics. This week, a runner from Sudan in the north reportedly walked into a London police station seeking asylum. South Sudan isn't officially represented at the Games. The country's only a year old and it doesn't have a national Olympic committee yet. But South Sudanese runner Gore Mariel has been given permission to compete as an independent athlete. Another big sport in South Sudan is wrestling. Now one man there wants to use the traditional sport to try to reduce the violence flaring inside the new country. Peter B.R. Ajak is on the line with us from Juba, South Sudan. Uh, Mr. Ajak, you have a pretty stunning story uh, escaping uh, the brutal civil war when you were a kid, yeah? Absolutely. Uh, when the war intensified in South Sudan, 
the government of Sudan uh, resorted to attacking uh, civilians. So a lot of uh, villages were destroyed and there was a huge displacement of civilians. We went to Ethiopia, stayed in those camps for quite some time. Then we came back to Sudan and just walked around through to Kenya until we eventually arrived in the United States. I ended up uh, in the United States as one of the Lost Boys of Sudan uh, that came as part of a program in 2001. Right, and you not only ended up in the United States, but at Harvard University? That is correct, indeed. I was uh, very privileged to have that opportunity. Since then, you've also consulted for the World Bank and worked around the world with uh, NGOs. Now, you're a major promoter of wrestling. How did that happen? Well, you know, while we were in the U.S. and looking at the things back home, there was increasing intertribal violence uh, within South Sudan among South Sudanese communities. And you see these things going beyond just the normal tradition of cattle raiding to attack on women and children that were quite devastating. So we thought of what can we do to sort of encourage peace. And if you look in South Sudan, especially in the rural areas, there isn't really much to do for those young men that are in the cattle camps. So the idea to bring wrestling in, we look at it as one skill that the people already have. And we think of, uh, from the experience in the United States, being able to watch the different sports in the United States, we thought we could form a league in which we could commercialize this innate talent and quite distinctive to our country. In a way, it's an old story. You have a bunch of kids with time on their hands who might otherwise get into trouble if they weren't doing this, wrestling in this case. Absolutely. And the best part about it is that they are compensated for the opportunity cost because we pay them uh, while they come to wrestle and they get to meet each other, which, of course, is quite unique in our country. Now, you talk about cattle rustling as one problem, but there's also considerable violence beyond that, especially uh, intertribal, which, as you say, the wrestling is one way to prevent because kids are meeting each other who wouldn't otherwise get together. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of that problem? Well, you see, in general, this is one of the consequences of our latest civil war. If you look before that era of civil war, there wasn't much violence going on across the tribes of South Sudan because they have lived there for quite some time. So with the civil war and even at the end of the war in 2005, the government of uh, Sudan continued to promote these ethnic conflicts among different groups in South Sudan to discredit South Sudan and to make an argument that South Sudan would be a country that cannot govern itself. Mm. At the same time, the issues of economic opportunity and access are real issues because most of these young men are unemployed. They don't have any other skills that they could use to get job anywhere else. So this problem there is now mixed with politics. And you see during 2007, 2008, 2009, a huge wave of violence that were going beyond cattle wrestling. And Peter, why wrestling? Is that kind of South Sudan's national sport, like baseball is in America, for example? I think so, because, you know, the problem with South Sudan, as you very well know, very little is developed here. But when you go all over around, even when you go up to Nuba Mountains, you find kids and everybody wrestling. This is a traditional sport, and it's actually founded on the culture of the people themselves. It relates to basically the economic activity of many different tribes in South Sudan, which is cattle industry. People eat their meat, they drink their milk, and they wrestle. And when you look at it also, it's a sport that does not need anything else to be added to it. For example, with basketball, you need to build basketball courts. With wrestling, you don't really need to do anything because people just wrestle on the ground. So our main challenge was actually creating the rules, uh, harmonizing the rules 
across many different tribal groups and across many different states. Okay, now you talk about paying wrestlers to participate. So this is obviously a business initiative of yours. Where is the money coming from? Well, you see, initially when we did it, we were raising this money ourselves. And the idea was that as we make these games, people will actually buy tickets to come and watch. But in our country, one thing we we realized uh, early on was that people were not prepared to pay for entertainment. So it, it didn't quite work that way. But the kind of results that came from it, how it really united different groups that were fighting each other, women uh, whose husband has been killed by rival communities were cooking for those men from those rival communities. It was really touching. And now we are looking at possibly getting someone to sponsor us. So we are talking with some banks here in South Sudan and uh, mobile companies. Now, uh, some of the draw of this is like wrestling or any sport anywhere, is that you create these wonderful rivalries. And from what I understand, there's, there's a great one going on now between two men from different tribes, right? Yeah, there are actually quite a number of them. Each one of the main uh, different communities have the main champions. Majuk Jongachol is the is the main uh, wrestler from Jongle State. Uh, is about six five uh, tall and probably more than uh, two hundred and thirty uh, pounds. Uh, was also a, a, a soldier back in the days, but have returned back and became a wrestler. Uh, is also a mechanic. Has not been de- defeated uh, since uh, he started wrestling. Does he have a wrestling the, name? He's called the the commander. And is that because of his military service or because he commands everyone in the ring? He commands everybody in the ring, indeed. <laughs> and yeah. the guy from Central Equatoria, Gorda Mapak, is also undefeated champion, and he's a bit younger than Majok. Uh, he's about the same height, although he's a bit skinny uh, compared to Majok. Uh, he called himself the governor because he believes he governed the ring. Uh, So uh, we are actually planning uh, a a match uh, on September 20th as part of the World World, uh, Peace Day, but the main tournament will start in uh, November. And each one of these men, they are practicing, they are eating a lot of diet with meat and milk in it uh, to get heavy and heavier. Uh, so uh, all of these communities, they is changing the sort of rivalry from like uh, fighting and uh, raiding cattle to who can be the champion in this game of wrestling. Peter B.R. Ajak heads the South Sudanese think tank, the Center for Strategic Analysis and Research, and he runs a new wrestling league. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Coming up, dairy farmers in much of the developing world dump out a lot of their milk because there's no refrigeration. A University of Georgia scientist is trying to change that. That story's ahead on PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, Syrians living in northern Israel agonize over the fighting just across the border in Syria. We just dream about the children, about the families, if they have a place to hide. And we think, why? What they do? PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, 
an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The standoff continues in Aleppo, Syria's most populous city. Rebels there are girding for a showdown with government forces, and there are fears that civilians could get caught up in the fighting. Adrian Jomé reports for the French newspaper Le Figaro. We reached him in Aleppo. He says the rebels are outgunned, but their tactics have been working well. They don't have heavy anti-tank weapons. They don't have anti-aircraft weapons. But to their credit, the regime sent some tanks against them. And after a few hours, they, the rebels managed to destroy three and to capture one, which is not bad. And we've not seen any tanks since then. So tanks are very impressive weapons. But as soon as you know how to fight them, and these guys apparently have learned that, you can face them. And we have to remember, too, that the city is the perfect ground for anti-tank warfare. Sounds like you're saying if they have any chance at all, if the rebels have any chance at all against the government army, it would be in a place like Aleppo. One has to remember that the military aspect is not the only one. Well, this is a revolution. So the message from the tanks and from the regime is go back home and go back to where we were before the revolution and otherwise we're going to kill you. And rebels say, well, no, we don't care to the regime. They say, well, you can kill us, but we won't, we won't recognize you as, um, as the government anymore. So the, the rebels are you know, counting on the fact that you know, standing and standing the ground is enough already to beat the regime. Most of the, the Syrian army troops are Sunni conscripts, and the rebels say, well, you know, these guys don't really want to fight. So are they right? I don't know. Adrian, thank you so much. Pleasure. Bye. Adrian Jomé, a correspondent for Le Figaro in Aleppo, Syria. We also spoke with John Lee Anderson, a staff writer for The New Yorker. He's on the outskirts of Aleppo, and he says the rebels are preparing for a government assault on rebel-held parts of the city. In the northeast of the city, one of the two rebel-held areas, uh, there was a situation of rebel checkpoints around the city, uh, attempts to move a little bit forward, negotiations with besieged police stations underway, sort of a hive of activity as guerrillas came and went from a kind of ad hoc headquarters and received orders about secret operations yet to come, quite a bit of frenetic activity about uh, the need for more ammunition which apparently is quite insufficient for defending the city from the expected government assault. Today, I was unable to go back in as planned because of reports of snipers or possibly special forces arriving at Aleppo Airport to the east. It's not confirmed. Government snipers, Um, obviously. Yeah, and also, which would cut off access between the villages of the north and northeast of Aleppo to the city, and also uh, uh, of a new checkpoint at a nearby ranger's base uh, here, about eight kilometers away. They've been shelling out of there, both to Aleppo and surrounding villages, but have remained inside the base, and now they've emerged and are stopping traffic. So whereas yesterday and in recent days, there's been quite a few people fleeing Aleppo to surrounding villages. Today, there's, in the afternoon anyway, there's been no traffic whatsoever coming. So there's this, this sense today, after seeing a very tense and edgy city yesterday, that, you know, that the, the um, government advance is en route. In general, how are the fighting men received by locals? 
you know, it wasn't exactly like they were throwing garlands of flowers down in front of the the fighters. I think in part because they're very aware of the danger yet to come. I did meet a commander the other day. He's quite Islamist and did receive training in explosives from men who had fought the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan. But we were able to have a dialogue. He wasn't too unfriendly. However, he did want an Islamic state of Syria. So mm -hmm. you do have a mixed bag here. Uh, many of the other rebels I've met are a little more uh, cosmopolitan, uh, a little less uh, religious, but you have a broad, you have a, quite a broad brushstroke, I think, across Syria. But it does tend towards the conservative, perhaps in inevitable reaction to a strongly secular nationalist regime. Mm. John Lee Anderson is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He joined us from just outside Aleppo, Syria, a key battleground in Syria's civil war. John, thank you very much and be safe. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. As the violence continues to spin out of control in Syria, Israel is stepping up security measures along the border. Israeli troops are on high alert and workers are reinforcing the fence that divides Syria from the Israeli-controlled Golan Heights. It's known as the ceasefire line, and Israel is worried that refugees or militants might try to cross it. The World's Matthew Bell reports that many people living in the Golan Heights are also watching events in Syria with anxiety. White-haired, 58-year-old Sami Ayyub has been riveted to the news from Syria for months. He spent much of his youth in Damascus before moving back to his parents' home village of Majdel Shams here in the Golan Heights. Ayyub says... It's been heart-wrenching to see his national homeland descend into bloody chaos. What's more disturbing, he says, is that this week he has literally been able to hear the fighting going on across the ceasefire line. He knows some of the residents there personally. We just uh, dream about the children, about the families, about uh, if they have a place to hide. And we think, why what they do. Like many of the Druze Arabs living on the Israeli side of the ceasefire line, Ayub thinks of himself as Syrian through and through. But he is disgusted with the violence that the Syrian government has unleashed on its own people. Standing on the roof of his home, pointing towards Syria, Ayub says it's ironic how the government there has been telling anyone who would listen about Israel's destruction of the Syrian village of Kunetra after the 1973 war. But now, how many villages and towns damaged by the regime hands without any merciful for a child or an old man or women? Ayub has relatives still living in Damascus, including his brother. Ayub says he stays in touch through Skype and email. They try to be careful about what they say because they're never sure who might be listening. But Ayub tells me he has no doubt that the rebels are the good guys and that they'll eventually win. But things here are complicated. This tight-knit community of about 20,000 Arab Druze living in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights is divided over what's happening in Syria. Gandhi Kaluni is a local pharmacist. In his view, what's going on in Syria right now is a regional war between the government of Bashar al-Assad and foreign-funded terrorists allied with al-Qaeda. Wait and see who will go, Kaluni tells me. Sarkozy in France is gone. Same with Berlusconi in Italy. Obama will be gone too, he says. But Assad will stay in power because the people of Syria want him to. 
Every Friday, members of the Druze community in the Golan have been coming out to show their support for and against the Syrian revolution. Last week, rival groups faced off against each other in a confrontation. So far, there have only been a few violent incidents between opposing groups in the Golan, but human rights activist Salman Fakhar al-Din worries about things getting out of hand. It's a very small number of popular people in the Golan. Any violence can destroy it. It's not, a, it's not millions of people that you can choose your friends. And most of us are relatives. I have to, I have to oppose my brother or my sister or my uncle or my aunt or my daughter. I think this is the game here, is to educate ourselves to accept others while they are different. Fakhar al-Din says the Syrian community in the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights might be physically cut off from events in Syria, but the conflict has already infected the population here. Now, he says, people need to come together to prevent things from getting worse. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Majdal Shams in the Golan Heights. In Afghanistan, there's more evidence that the fighting is intensifying. According to NATO, the number of enemy-initiated attacks has increased by 11 percent compared to a similar period last year. This comes as the U.S. and its allies continue to pull troops out of Afghanistan. We're joined by George Friedman, founder and CEO of Stratfor Global Intelligence. George, what exactly do these news figures mean? Uh, If you would unpack them a bit for us. Well, it's very hard to tell what the 11% means because you don't know if you're referring to uh, a hand grenade thrown inaccurately at a base or an assault by dozens of troops. But the, the sense is that Taliban is increasing the tempo of its operations, and uh, there are good reasons for that. Remember, the American strategy and the Western strategy is to withdraw our troops but retain our political successes. In other words, we created the government. We want that government to continue We just don't want our troops there. Taliban's goal ultimately is to return to the status quo ante before the intervention in 2001 and 2002. And therefore, their primary goal is not to allow us to withdraw our forces and simply leave the Karzai government in place. So the issue here really is that there are two armies. One is withdrawing. It is getting weaker. The other has not yet achieved its goals, and it is going to press its advantage more and more as we draw down. It sounds like um, a cycle that can't be stopped. Well, I mean, this is a war uh, that each side wants to win. The definition of victory is the nature of the regime. Somehow, everybody has gotten focused on the question of withdrawal of American forces and the assumption that the other side who gets a vote is going to allow us to withdraw our forces and keep our political gains. Now, that may be possible, but it's not easy. I guess the question then is, have U.S. troops stabilized the region at all? Well, they certainly have not created a situation where the Taliban is incapable of fighting. It has not created an Afghan force that is capable necessarily of resisting them. And it has reached a limit of the amount of forces it's prepared to put in there. Well, it sounds like the answer is no. Well, the other way to put it is we had two strategies. One, the disruption of al-Qaeda, so it could no longer carry out an attack on the United States. So that part has been enormously successful. Have we managed to create a regime that can survive on its own? No. So partly the mission is successful, and partly the mission is failing, unless we want to commit more forces for a longer period of time. And there seems to be consensus on all sides that we don't want to do that. 
Now, the official word is authorities from the president on down will say we're building up the Afghan security forces. They may not be ready this moment, but very soon they will be able to take on the Taliban. They will be able to protect their own country. Do you believe that? I don't. And I think a lot of people who say that don't. And the problem is this. It's the same thing that happened in Vietnam. We would try to build up the army Vietnam Arvin, but the North Vietnamese created a intelligence program to seed Arvin with North Vietnamese intelligence operatives. From the top to the bottom, they knew what Arvin was doing. And the Taliban has done the same thing. Uh, We have recruited an army. We don't really know who the members of that army are. And we get anecdotal evidence of some soldiers or policemen shooting uh, Western troops. We can assume that that military that we've created is unsecure, both in an intelligence sense and reliability, because Taliban has worked very hard to make it that way. And that's the problem with transferring uh, authority to a force you've created in the middle of a civil war. The other side gets a chance to penetrate it. So thoughts on uh, what we can expect next in Afghanistan? Well, I think what's going to happen here is the withdrawal will continue. We will have a face-saving coalition government formed if the Taliban wishes to give it to us. But in due course, the Taliban, under the oversight of the Pakistanis, are going to be given responsibility. Uh, If we can extract from that the agreement that they will vigorously oppose the creation of organizations such as al-Qaeda, that'll be about as much of a victory as we can get. In the meantime, everybody is going to pretend that this is going to be a successful operation. We will achieve our political ends without having to fight a war any longer. Considering that, where is America's image in the world, its prestige in the world, the day after, the year after? Well, we lost the Vietnam War rather badly. By the 1980s, it was a forgotten event. Because in the end, the Vietnam War was not of fundamental strategic importance to the United States, and it was not the United States to collapse with the Soviet Union. In the same sense, Afghanistan was critically important in 2001. It's far less important today. Uh, There will be loud declarations of the decline of the United States and the collapse of American power. And in due course, in a couple of years, um, that'll be forgotten. I mean, how many of us really worry about the fact that in Korea, we reached a stalemate and couldn't defeat the Chinese? George Friedman, founder and CEO of Stratfor Global Intelligence. George, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And today, as we mentioned, is the 59th anniversary of the Korean Armistice. A military ceremony took place in Panmunjom, the answer to our geo-quiz. The village is on the line between North and South Korea. American General James Thurman was on hand. We hope that uh, at some point we could start uh, discussions again so we could resolve and uh, uh, the situation and eventually get to where we don't have a uh, demilitarized zone here. Uh, I think that would be very important. For now, though, Panmunjom remains a flashpoint along one of the world's most heavily fortified borders. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter. 
Each year, millions of gallons of milk go to waste because farmers can't get it chilled quickly enough. It's a common problem in countries like Uganda and India. A milk chiller, as it's called, requires power and lots of it, which means, of course, a connection to the electricity grid and usually a diesel generator as a backup. And that's simply too expensive for many farmers and dairies in the developing world. The world's Clark Boyd has been finding out about efforts to make it easier and cheaper. Clark, in an article you wrote for BBC Future, you write about a professor at the University of Georgia who got interested in solving this milk-chilling problem in his native Uganda. What was his idea? So this is a professor. His name is William Kisalita, and he grew up in Uganda on a small farm. And so he's always been interested in coming up with tech solutions uh, to help these farmers because he doesn't feel like the developed world and engineers in the developed world work on these kinds of problems. What he's done is he's, he's thought about solutions for, for a small farmer. He's thinking of, you know, usually a milk chiller will hold gallons and gallons and gallons. And what he's thinking is a, a small one that holds a lot less than that. Basically a day's supply. Yeah, maybe or a, a day or days. a couple of days supply. Yep. And uh, the question is how to power this because, like you said, uh, electricity is an issue. His initial idea was, you know, solar power. Why not? Uh, but he tried that. And the problem is, is that he can't make the cost work. In other words, you can set up a milk chiller that will work on solar power. That's not the issue. It's not an engineering problem. It's a cost problem. The, 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 the unit that you create just costs too much for farmers. So he started thinking again, what else could we do that would lower the cost? Here's, him, here's William Kisalita talking about his idea for using a biogas mini plant. A small farm with about five cows produces a lot of cow dung. Now you can ferment the cow dung to produce the biogas. You can use a fraction of it to cool and a fraction of it to cook and provide lighting. And the slurry that comes out of the plant, the biogas mini plant, you can use to fertilize the the land. So it looks like a win-win situation. Yeah, it, it really does. Powering refrigeration with poop. Exactly. The only problem is is that this biogas idea is such a new one for the local farmers that they're not exactly buying into the idea. Um, in other words, the outlay for the, in, the initial cost of, of building like even a, even a mini biogas plant for these farmers, they're not convinced that it's worth the money. They've come back to William Kisalita and said, can you do the same thing but do it with propane? which is locally available, can be delivered. It's probably what they cook on. It's, it's, it's exactly. They use propane for lots of different things. Why not use it for this? And so right now he's working on this same concept, a small milk chiller, but that would be powered by propane. You can read Clark's column on milk chilling technologies on our website. That's theworld.org. Clark, thanks for stopping by. You're welcome, Aaron. Finally, musician Bibi Tanga is the son of a diplomat from the Central African Republic, but Tanga grew up all over the world, in Moscow, Paris, New York, and other cities. He and his band, Bibi Tanga and the Selenites, are now based in Paris. Bibi Tanga says there were advantages and disadvantages to his nomadic youth. It was hard having to make new friends all the time, but he says that globe-trotting lifestyle now serves him well as a musician, and his fans have noticed. They says, ah, we can hear some uh, uh, reggae influences, African influences, American influences. We want to do that kind of mixture to, to have this sound, you know. So if people recognize it, it's really, it's a good thing for us, you know. I read some interviews that you've done, and one of the things you say, you always want people to do, regardless of what style of music uh, they're listening to, is to get up and dance. Yeah. Let's listen to the song, My Heart is Jumping. And uh, for those of you out there... If you're not dancing, get up and dance. Yeah. My heart. 
first time I met her in town. I had a crush on her, my baby brown. Now my heart is bleeding, cause I'm looking after her. Lately, lately, in the evening, oh. In addition to the different grooves that you use in your music, you do get um, a little bit political now and then. Do you think that's what uh, musicians and artists are here for? Uh, not especially. If you want to do it, you do it. If you not do it, we can't bl- blame you, you know. But uh, I was raised in a diplomat family, you know, and I and I travel a lot, so I cannot just say, no, this that kind of thing doesn't exist or... Uh, there is no problem of uh, AIDS in Central Africa. I cannot be blind, you know, so I have to talk about it. This is what I, I feel concerned, you know. I, sometimes I want to get more involved, you know. It's just just because I, I'm like that, you know. Maybe sometimes some, some others don't want to be involved or in some things. They just want to do music and that's it. You can't blame, blame them for that, you know. Is the point of your music to get a political message across with kind of a, a, a funky dance beat so, so it's easier to, uh, to take in? Yeah, like uh, Mr. Feller did, you know. Yeah. It makes you, da- makes you dance, but uh, it makes you think also. Yeah, I also thought as I was listening to the CD, it made me think of the band War as well. It's kind of funky, yeah. kind of important. You know, it, mm-hmm. it has a lot to say. Yeah, it's not only a dancing music. You can dance and be, be thinking too, you know. That goes together. People are dying. One thing that is, uh, there is no question about, apparently, is that you are the best-dressed man in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's according to your record label. Is that true? Yeah, it's true, man. You know, actually, if you see me, I'm just dressed like, uh, you know, in the 30s, you know, like uh, like you're going, I'm always going to party, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. Are you wearing a the, suit now? Yeah, actually, I'm wearing a suit. I had a hat. <laughs> Let's end now with the track Kangoya, sung in Sango, the language uh, of Africa where you grew up. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit uh, what the song's about? The song is about the palm wine, you know, that drink comes up, that comes up from the, the palm tree. And it's a kind of drink which is really important in Central Africa because uh, we, we drink it during, uh, you know, uh, ceremonial parties. You know, people drink it before they go to the concert. And I really like it, too. I must confess, <laughs> with moderation that, you know... Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Bibi Tanga is frontman for Bibi Tanga and the Selenites. Their new album is called 40 Degrees of Sunshine. You can watch a video of the band at theworld.org. The World's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a funky weekend. Kangoya, hey mama, can I come? Kangoya, hey mama, can I come?
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Annenberg Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.